Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day, uh, and we thank you that you are here with us, that you uh, are always present uh, when we read your scriptures, your Holy Spirit indwells us and helps us to understand the meaning and illuminates truth to us. Lord, we thank you uh, that we can come directly to you through your word and need not go through uh, any hierarchy or, or uh, man alive to, to go and, and uh, learn about you and to encounter you and to confess our sins to you, that there is one high priest uh, between God and man, and that is the man Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we study your word and as we use this aid of the Baptist Catechism to do that, we pray that you would help us to uh, avoid all error and you would help us to come to a deeper understanding of who you are and how you speak to us. Uh, and what you want for us. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, so we left with a question last week, which I'm sure you pondered at great length, which is how can the two answers be one answer? How can two things be one end? And to refresh your memory, the first question in the catechism was, what is the chief end of man? meaning purpose or for what was he created. And the answer was? Exactly. Super important stuff to know. Um, you know, details like why on earth am I here? Uh, or why am I here on earth? And we talked about quite a bit uh, of the, the, a lot of the aspects of that, that answer. And then I pointed out that it seemed like a bit of a cheat to say man's chief end, singular, here's the one big thing, and then to sneak two uh, answers in. So, what are your thoughts? Hey, Rene. Um, okay, it's one answer because, oh shoot, it's just like how I was gonna say it. It might be rambling. Um, <laughs> it probably will. So if your chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, that is something that is for God and for you. So the chief end is for both. Because if you're glorifying God, and we've talked about like if you're glorifying God, you're enjoying him, vice versa. But you're getting a benefit and God is getting a benefit. So that's why it's one answer. Because it's it's a two part answer. Okay, you're saying Say this something, is... I'll just keep talking. <laughs> I was gonna try and help you. Help me. Go down into the pit on the Sabbath day and pull the ox out. Um, no, that, I, so you're essentially saying this is a two-sided question, kind of. You could look at it from God's point of view and man's point of view, and that's why it's... That's exactly I mean, I don't know if I agree with that, but I was just... That's coherent. Uh, Kim? We talked last week a little bit about glorifying God, or enjoying God is how we glorify Him. Or that that's... We did, that's, that's John Piper's uh, deal was you glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Um, meaning one of these things is the instrumental means of the other, which would be then sort of like the question, how are you saved? And you say, simple, by grace through faith. Faith being the instrumental means that God uses in his grace to save us. So yeah, that, that's certainly possible. People have more lately, um, there's grumpier and grumpier Baptists all the time, and sadly those seem to be often the ones who are kind of drawn to some of these documents because they're, you know, there's such categorical lines and everything is delineated so uh, kind of neatly. And people have been 
uh, writing articles and still blog posts in 2018 and stuff about how that's just not good. That's not a good way to look at it, um, that we enjoy him or we glorify him by enjoying him. It trivializes God's glory, etc. I don't know. I, I, think it's, I think it holds water. I think it's, it's quite sound. Um, and ultimately, I think the simplest answer is these are essentially one and the same thing. We can't do one without the other. You can't pursue God's glory the way you were built to without finding satisfaction in him. You can pursue him in all sorts of other ways, uh, like the Pharisees did. They did not find any enjoyment or satisfaction in God. They found a heavier and heavier and heavier weight. Or you can pursue God. I mean, look at all the wonky ways people have said, oh, no, I'm trying to please God, and then done things that range from bizarre to downright wicked without truly enjoying him. But you can't glorify him the way he designed us to with our very lives, without finding ultimate satisfaction in him, without that power, expulsive power of new affections, pushing out the old affections that we're seeking after flash in the pan gratification and instead finding eternal joy in him. And at the same time, you can't truly enjoy God without then glorifying him. Again, you can try. What are some ways people have tried to enjoy God without focusing on his glory? Worshiping the created things rather than the creator. So they're trying to enjoy a lowercase g God, kind of? Yeah, like enjoying all the stuff, but not giving glory to the people <coughs> who created it. What about trying to enjoy the creator himself without really glorifying him? You can't. But people have tried frequently. Oh, example. That's what I was asking for, but I'll give you one. How about any book that talks about how God is here to give you stuff? And make you happy and make you healthy and make you good looking like the lady on the cover or give you white teeth like the guy on the cover and make every day feel like a Friday and now I'm just quoting actual book titles but uh, yeah if, we, if God becomes a means to the end of me being happy meaning content in my circumstances rather than content in him then I want to enjoy him but not to his glory to my success and glory that's very common. It's one of the, I think that's more common than the other error in our, in our world today, at least in our culture. Um, people, everyone wants to enjoy God. It's just, a, it's a benefit. You're walking down the smorgasbord of life and you want a nice little dollop of God. He's in my corner. All right. Who can be against me? But it doesn't work if I'm not living to his glory. Uh, ultimately, I'm not worshiping the true God, the God who is Yahweh. I'm worshiping you know, a projected on myself. Perhaps. Well, it's like everybody likes to celebrate Easter and Christmas, but, you know, they're not really focused on God with the oh. secular people. Uh-huh. Right, right. So Easter and Christmas, a big celebratory, exciting, but, but very few of the people who are kind of culturally Christian would be there for Good Friday for the cross and certainly wouldn't be interested in taking up their own cross. So yeah, looking to enjoy kind of the benefits of maybe even a Christian society or, or cultural Christianity without the actual daily denying of yourself and following him and seeking his glory. Yeah, all very good answers. Even yours, Aaron. Oh, I missed you when you were gone. I'm glad you're back. Um, all right, so here, here's a few questions then. Actually, I want to I point us to some scriptures. We're going to be flipping all over the place. You're going to 
paper cuts by the time we leave. Um, someone look up. Swords drawn? Coffee down? Swords drawn? Anyone not remember that? That's a Sunday school game when you're a kid. You hold up your Bible, and then you're like, Mark 9-4, and they hadn't yet invented the stick-on tabs yet somehow, and so everybody struggled. What's that? <laughs> well, you know, it's too expensive when you have all those extra books in the Bible. Um, a, lot of, a lot of Lutherans do. Luther did. I don't know what page you're in, but why don't you turn to Psalm 84, uh, 2 through 4, and someone read that for me. Got it. Oh, supposed to stand, by the way, and read it to, to, to four. To four. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and, my, and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Now, what were the first three words of that? Longs. Longs, okay. I've got an NIV here and it says yearns. Oh. And I thought I heard you say yawns. And I was like, well, that would certainly be a different uh, <laughs> kind of vibe. Um, my soul yearns or longs, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young. A place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. In that, as in many, many passages from Psalms, we find both enjoying God and glorifying God, lifting up His, His majesty, magnifying His name, interwoven together as if they're the same thing. In fact, we have this thing called parallelism in the Psalms. Don't learn about it because then every time you read anything from Psalms, you're going to just be like, get it, 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 I don't know what kind of parallelism. But generally, there are two parallel statements and often you see how the biblical writers equate two things. And glorifying God and enjoying him are often those two things, especially with our boy David. He's often, he wants to be in the courts of God because he loves it and he yearns for it. And he wants to be in the courts of God because God is glorious. And those two things are together. And, and that blessed are those who dwell in your house. If we were in the New Testament, that word blessed would be markarios, like blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. A word often translated happy. And while it doesn't quite have the same semantic domain when we're talking about barukah, it, it does have that uh, connotation. Yeah, these people who are in God's house and God's presence praising him are happy because that's where they want to be. And the more they're there doing it, the more that's what they want. So the more it's what they do. It's this wonderful, vicious cycle. All right, speed round for question one. Apart from God's saving work, does a person have any hope of glorifying God and enjoying Him? Apart from repentance and faith, turning to Him for salvation, being granted a new heart, sins forgiven, does, does anyone have any hope of glorifying God and or enjoying Him? No. Why not? Because you, you don't have him inside you. You don't have Holy Spirit inside you then. Okay. Um, you've got to accept Christ before. Well, I, I would say that 
there might be a level of enjoyment you could have, but because you don't know God, you can't experience it fully. Because the yeah. people in the Old Testament didn't know Jesus, yeah. but they still could experience God through the means that he... Still, though, they were the recipients of God's redeeming work. They just, by faith, before the fact, and, and the former things were, were passed over. I, I wonder, and, and I mean, God works in... There's, there's taste and see that the Lord is good, right? There's this call to everyone to experience God. And I wonder if perhaps there are glimpses and whiffs and tastes of the enjoyment of God that he uses to draw people to himself. I mean, if you're out in the middle, I know a lot of people who got saved because they were in the grandeur of nature, which is interesting to me because that's often what pe people will claim keeps them from, I don't need God, you know, I mean, just look at all of this. Isn't this enough? We well, have, yeah, but come on. <laughs> Did this build itself? Yeah, no. Uh, we'll get to that, but um, a lot of people who've come to faith even, it was a moment of just look how big the sky is and how many gazillions of stars there are and a moment of recognizing if there's a God, he's just amazing. And rather than that being frightening, in that moment it's comforting and it's, it's, it's something to be enjoyed um, and it draws them closer. So that's, I think... I would suggest, yeah, but I would love to hear someone argue uh, with, with that proposition. I would also say that any sort of man-made religion is an attempt to do that, that there are, there are ways in which somebody is trying to glorify God incorrectly, um, but I, I would think that that would be sometimes part of that. I don't know. The question, though, is does a person have any hope of actually glorifying God and enjoying Him forever? I'm quite sure the picture of false religion throughout the scriptures well, yeah, I mean, shows that it does the opposite. Right? But I think that's the impulse. Sure, yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, I, even, even the Pharisees probably at least told themselves, well, all the stuff that we're doing is because God is glorious, and, and they had some truth at, at the core of it, but at the end of the day... Uh, it was it was more internally focused and rather rather than being upwardly focused. Any other thoughts on that? Well, the question was sort of worded like you have to have one the saving grace before you have. Right. Yeah, that was the question. And so the, the the part about enjoying God, even though you don't realize it's God or what He's done for us or whatever, um, I, I agree with you. I think that that can come without having actually had that moment of, you know, belief, but, but the part about enjoying him forever, it seems like, mm -hmm. it seems like that has to come first. I mean, it seems like you have to be saved before that component of it. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I, w I would certainly agree. Yeah, so, so maybe, I, I don't want to sound like I'm pushing the Methodist doctrine of prevenient grace, been um, <laughs> saying that God kind of wakes you up and says, Eh? Eh? Salvation? And you can either go, eh, five more minutes, or get out, you know, come. Uh, rather, the picture in Scripture is you're dead, and God wakes you up and, and makes you alive. Um, but certainly he uses means for that. And some of those means, when you hear people's testimonies, certainly include uh, a understanding and a, a true enjoyment of, I, I would say probably as they near the cross, usually, but I don't know, I've known people who've, who've been reading books about, you know, I knew a guy who read like seven books by C.S. Lewis before he even asked the question, do I believe this stuff? 
And he was just kind of amazed by this God that was being described and loved in, in, in reading about him and, and thinking about him. And, and it was enjoyable. But at some point, the Holy Spirit was like, you in or you out? So, I, I don't know. It's, it's a tough question, and, and probably we could make a case for either, either answer. Uh, we already answered that one. Somebody look up for me. Isaiah 26, 8. Somebody else. Psalm 73, 25. Remember, lightning round, so you got to go quick. You're already there? Ho, ho! All right, you are an impressive woman. Let's hear it. Uh, in the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Okay, and how about Psalm seventy-three twenty-five? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. So, both of these say essentially the same thing. First one is uh, the prophet Isaiah, the desire of our soul is for thy name. In Psalm 37, on earth, I got nobody but you. My, my desire is for you. My longing is for you. And my question is, what if that's not your soul's ultimate desire? What if, what if you, you say, I, know, I've, I do believe in Jesus, and I, and I do love him, and I do want to glorify him, but I know that when I ask the question, you know, what is there here on earth to compete that there are four or five valid answers in my life that are pulling me around. Then what? What if I couldn't read with Isaiah and say, the desire of my soul is for thy name? What if, what if my desire of my soul is for my own name? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, I mean, a lot of godly people have fallen into this, right? Can we think of any examples from, from Scripture? Or anyone want to share any from their own life, Richard? He's not smiling. I know. He's like, what? Uh, being from Oklahoma, I'm going to throw Oral Roberts out there. Oh, okay. Well, we've well, thrown him out there. How? As somebody who initially pursued God, but as his name became more known and he created the school and it, it just created this vortex that it was him and him alone that had done all this. Mm -hmm. Oh, like Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, absolutely, yeah, yeah. So it's easy to, to begin to believe your own hype, right? And, and start to think that you are the special, I mean, that's certainly what the enemy wants to whisper into our ear. That's you. You did. If, if, it's, if it's something wicked that you did, that's who you are. If it's something, he'll use that, fill you with shame and drag you down. If it's something good you did, ah, you're the source of that. Puff you up with pride. Either way, he didn't care. Um, I think even of David, right? Lots of times, I mean, why is he numbering his armies? Because he's the man and he wants credit for that. In that moment, could he have really said, his own words, who have I in heaven but you? And, you know, who do I desire on the earth? I mean, probably not, no. He had all sorts of stuff that he desired here and now that was front and center. Well, and there were a lot of times the disciples were trying to point out things like that. Like, um, 
who's going to thinking sit that it was an earthly kingdom, mm -hmm. you know, and who's going to sit at your right and your left and things like that. Absolutely, yeah. So glory, then their own glory. That's obviously their own glory. Now we wouldn't say, well, they weren't saved, and we wouldn't say, well, then you know, forget them. They're they're false teachers. We'd say that's a struggle people have. So anyone here ever struggled with that? Where you find that just you and me, Aaron, Beth too, and Oral Roberts. Um, <laughs> it's this is I think the ultimate battle for a Christian, right? Continually having to knock other idolatrous desires out of our hearts and refocus on glorifying God so that we will enjoy him forever or that or by enjoying him forever or how we however we approach it um, him being our satisfaction him being our chief end his glory being our goal and not our own so I think the answer to my question and this is the right answer there's only one right answer is repent Repent, like if I had a big sign that said repent. The end is near. And uh, repent because we can repent. And that's not you know, scary, that's comforting. We, we, we've always, every day, we fall short of our chief end. We're, we're always going to. And yet he's always there to accept our puny praise, which is all of it tainted with our own sin and selfishness. And he's always there to say, you can enjoy me, even though last time it very quickly turned into something else. And, and even in the midst of singing hymns and, and praises to me, your mind was going to whatever that other thing is. Uh, let's, let's do it again. Let's, and, and, and he's continually forgetting us. So I think even wrapped up in our failure to the, to the issue here is God's grace. Um, if this is the chief and highest end, are there lesser ends of man? I mean, they put the word chief in there, implying you had maybe a tiered system here or something. If this is the chief purpose, the main purpose of man, does that imply that there are lesser purposes beneath it? And, and we kind of want to let them all sort geologically into the right place, just as long as God is on top. Oh, well, I guess that's sort of what I was going to say, is that all the other purposes, like justice and caring for widows and orphans and, and serving God, whatever, all fall under um, our chief. It, it, mm -hmm. All the other purposes are kind of... Well, even, that's what I was going to say. Even like the be fruitful and multiply, or like those sort of commands to people, um, those would be things that would be under that. Okay. Or maybe they're the way that you do it. By obeying you are glorifying God. So chief kind of implies that all other ends should be subject to that end. Right. Maybe not. It's the most important of all these important things, but it's the overarching and everything else. It is maybe a, a pyramid, but in the sense that, or more, more of an umbrella, right? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so things like vocation, it's not I have to give God a little more mental space and time and energy than my vocation this week, whether that's mother or father or uh, toll bluth collector or whatever I'm doing, but rather in that, I glorify Him. Um, that All of these things that we might want to 
kind of even eating and drinking, right? Down to the simplest of things. Paul says, whatever you do, whether you eat or you drink, do it to the glory of God, whether it's enjoying creation. We don't, we, we don't want to fall into this weird neo-Gnostic view of life where, all right, everyone needs a little bit of once in a while going out to eat and once in a while taking a bike ride on the river trail or you'll go nuts, but don't let that get out of control because really what you're here for is God stuff evangelism and reading your Bible and praying as you go up cathedral steps on your knees. No, what we're here for is to enjoy God and glorify Him in everything we do. So in your enjoyment of creation, you certainly are enjoying God and can glorify Him in your vocation, as long as it's not something blatantly sinful, like loan sharking. Um, If you're listening on the internet, I gestured at Richard when I said that, and again, he didn't laugh. I don't know what's going on. You all right today, man? Yep. All right. It's because I love you. You know, I don't tell you that often, but I. I... <laughs> all right. Um, but, you know, we, we read in the scriptures, you know, read Ecclesiastes and read, you know, enjoy the work of your hands. Enjoy the wife of your youth. Enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Is, is he saying these are things to challenge God, so don't enjoy them too much? No, these are gifts from God. And if you try to enjoy them as the end, right, the chief end, then what is it? Meaningless, meaningless, vanity of vanities. It's like chasing after the wind, which you'll never catch. But if they're not the end, they're the means to the end of glorifying God and enjoying him, then what great blessings all of these things are. And I think that becomes, you know, I mean, we look at Jesus' ministry and say, if we put him to the standard a lot of uh, Baptists held to, he was at the party saying, my time has not yet come. I'm just here to party, Mom. <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> I'm upset about the wine situation, but because I wanted more wine, not because I was looking for an opportunity to start off the Messianic ministry. So there, there's definitely room in life for enjoying all the good things of life under the umbrella, not, not, not as a lesser uh, end, but under the umbrella of the chief end, which is enjoying God um, and glorifying Him. I keep switching it backwards, but I think because our tendency is um, to find... I think the, the, the main thing that, kicks, that throws me off is when I try to find satisfaction in anything else. Um, I don't generally find myself trying to glorify someone else, even myself that much, but I often look for that satisfaction. Maybe you're different, but, but that's, uh, that's the struggle every day for a Christian is to repent of where we've fallen short and know that God will hear our repentance and, and accept us back. Uh, great quote from Bengal, God is my father because he is my beginning. Christ is my Lord because he is my end. I'll say it again in case you want to write it down. God is my Father because He is my beginning. Christ is my Lord because He is my end. That's wordplay. If He was a dad, it's a dad joke. I don't know. No, I think it's just clever and wonderful. I think it's one more time. God is my Father because He is my beginning. Christ is my Lord because he is my end. And you have also in there kind of the beginning and the end, Alpha and Omega reference.
And I think maybe a good exercise um, to take daily or weekly or regularly is to just sit with yourself, maybe not even with an open Bible to distract you, but before you open the Scriptures, and, and ask God through the Holy Spirit to reveal to me right now what is my chief end. If I'm, if I'm honest, if I have you know, a real disinterested, uh, honest, objective view, and just look at my life, I know my thoughts, I know my desires, I know what's motivating me when I do this, if it's really what it looks like it is, or if it's some other alternative. I know all this better than anyone else anyway, except for him. What's my chief end? And where it's not his glory and my enjoyment of him, that's a good place to start your prayer life. Right? And that's a good grid through which to, to read scripture. Any other thoughts on question one? Anyone want to challenge me uh, on heresy, blasphemy, or to a fist fight? Kim, yes. <laughs> my, my thought is that this is such a short question and such a short answer, and look at how much time and how many facets there are to this. That and we've just scratched the surface, really, yeah. right? And we and could have a class on this. Just reading that and memorizing or something, I never would have gone that deep into it, and, and I appreciate those insights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the cat thing, well, I, I, are you complimenting me, or are you talking about the catechism? I have to know what we're... I'm complimenting the catechism. And, All right, yeah, yeah, good. And, and you for bringing some... And you're glorifying God for the divine to... No, but that, I think that's the, the way to use it, is as the tool to prompt discussion and thought and all this, rather than... So even, even the catechism then becomes the means to the end of learning about God there in order to glorify him and enjoy him more rather than the end itself, just memorizing these. What happens when kids memorize the stuff? Um, my, I, I really became enamored of the Heidelberg Catechism, which I'm going to read some of in, in the sermon this morning. And I remember asking my dad, did you ever learn this thing? It's so amazing. And him saying, well, yeah, when I was a kid. And I was like, do you remember it? No. Aaron, do you remember the Luther's small catechism? Do some of it, but, some I, of it. but I didn't learn, my son and uh, my father both learned the explanations. Oh, the okay. Well, you went to kind of a and, uh, chintzy Lutheran sure church. I'm sure they don't remember them anymore. <laughs> yeah, our, our, our son learned them like a year and a half ago and, and already was struggling. The thing is, I think, if you just lock it away there, it's... It, it's it, still there. It's, eh. It'll be easier to remember next yeah. time. I suppose... The problem is if it's just words stuck together, it's not as valuable and it's not going to have anything to hang on, right? It's like anybody ever go to VBS as a kid and they're like, we're giving away prizes if you learn today's verse. And you're like, got it. You go up, you say it, they give it to you. Tomorrow you don't know it anymore. It's short-term memory. But if that's a verse that when your life, the bottom of it falls out and you're like grasping for anything and you find that and it means something to you, you're never going to forget it. I think it's like when you hear about <clears throat> actors who had to like speak in a different language for a role so that they just memorized the sounds that they were saying. They don't mm-hmm. actually speak that language or you know, learned how to play a certain song on an instrument but can't really play that instrument. And when you're dealing with children, which of course is the original intention of a, a, a catechism and, and illiterate people who, who couldn't read the scriptures, um, it can be useful. It's like you know, in the classical education, you teach kids songs that sound like nonsense words. And then later on, they're like, remember that song that you, that you 
get stuck in your head every once in a while, that's the verb endings for Latin. And they're like, oh, wow, benefits of a classical education. But um, it's, that's a secondary, I think. I think if we're believers already learning these things, yeah, like, like Kim says, it's got to prompt us going down a lot of different trails and rabbit holes and all this stuff. Uh, so question two. Let's read it together. What rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify him? The word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify God and enjoy him. Man, those guys were close-minded. Uh, let's look up the two uh, scripture proofs, Ephesians 2.20. And 1 John 1, 3 to start with. And wow, we have less time left than I thought we would. I want to get to my uh, video. Let you smoke come out of my ears. And while you look that up, let me hit you with an old-timey sermon illustration. During days of war, a godly man visited a camp of French soldiers at Toulon, taking with him a number of French New Testaments, which he distributed to the men, many of whom seemed pleased with the gift. He had at length exhausted all his store with the exception of one copy. This he offered to a man standing near him. The man took it, opened it, and turning to a companion said sneeringly, Oh, this will do to light my pipe with. Oh. Is this about you? Before you... <laughs> no, no, you're not a French soldier. A discouraging enough reception, but the book, having been once given, was beyond recovery. About a year and a half after this occurrence, the distributor of the Testaments was on a short journey through the south of France and stopped on his way at a roadside inn for refreshment and a night's lodging. On entering the house, he soon perceived that something of a sad nature had happened to the landlady. On inquiring what it was, she informed him that her eldest son had been buried that very week. She went on very naturally to dilate on his many excellencies and spoke of his happy deathbed. And sir, she said... All his happiness was got from a little book that was given him some time ago. The traveler inquired further concerning the little book. You shall see it, said the mother. It is upstairs. She soon returned with the book. On opening it, he found it to be the French New Testament and identified it as the very one he had himself given so many months before to that seemingly unpromising soldier at Toulon. He discovered that five or six of the early pages had been torn out thus indicating that the man had actually commenced the fulfillment of his threat to use the book to light his pipe with. This was not all. On the inside cover were written the words, given to me at Toulon on 21st October, first despised, then read, and finally blessed to the saving of my soul. Wow. That's good stuff. Cool. Um, let's hear that, Ephesians 2.20. Oh, um, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. All right. That's a sentence fragment, I suppose, but yeah. that's the part they wanted to emphasize. Maybe read that whole sentence for I'm us. I'm off of it now. I just wrote that down. I'm on the next one. <laughs> now, therefore, you have no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, being the chief cornerstone. Of course, you're undoubtedly familiar that the New Testament speaks of the Old Testament, not in the words Old Testament, because they didn't have any reference point for that, but as either the law and the prophets, uh, the law, the prophets, and the writings, or sometimes just the law. It's just shorthand. 
Then, when we read in the New Testament about the entirety of the scriptures, uh, when some of these people seem to include either the writings of other apostles or even their own writings under that heading, they'll talk about the prophets and the apostles. Uh, and that becomes the Old and the New Testaments. Um, you have to use context, of course, to determine when that's what's being said, but uh, not uncommon. Uh, how about 1 John 1.3? That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we did not see and hear all these things happen, but our faith is not rooted in some ethereal idea or abstract principle. It's rooted in history. Uh, and so it's falsifiable. It's uh, something that if it didn't happen, Paul says you should mock us because... We're, we're just stupid. Our faith is in vain. We're, we're silly. And so it's so good and, and necessary that those who did see and hear with their own eyes and ears passed it on to us. You, know, you see that in the prologue to Luke and Acts. I, these people are all starting to croak. And so I went around and I made an orderly account so that we wouldn't lose these words and these, these stories and these important things with that generation. And so, yeah, there's um, a real sense of the New Testament being kind of the eyewitnesses on our behalf. And of course, Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who haven't seen and yet still believe. So that's, that's us. Blessed are us, right? Um, let's read, I'll read to you 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 17. This is, a, a, of course, a very well-known passage about Scripture. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know... Let me start over. A weird inflection. <laughs> this is Paul writing to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed, and is used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, it is quarter after. I have a whole thing about how inspiration works, and we're going to talk about verbal, verbal plenary inspiration, but I want to play the video since I set it up and get um, a counterpoint for all of my points. Um, and that's got to, the volume on that's got to go up, I think, because... I'm running it through the projector, and the, the, it's pretty weak there. This is a little clip from uh, the heyday of the emergent church, which is a buzzword that makes me chuckle when I hear it because it's old news, but these people are all still around and still teaching this sort of thing. I'm Brian McLaren. Thanks for being part of this quest for a new kind of Christianity. Now right, we're on to the second question. 
How does the Bible have authority? It's the authority question. What do we do with the Bible? Now you've made a very strong statement in the book and you say for a new kind of Christianity to emerge, we need a new approach oh. to the Bible. I mean, it's, it's so true. Our approach to the Bible now is kind of like railroad tracks. It, it puts us in a track and we can't get out of it. Uh, and uh, for us to see the kind of change we need, we, I'm not recommending throwing out the Bible, I'm recommending changing our approach to the Bible and asking important questions about how we use the Bible, how we derive authority from the Bible, how we give authority to the Bible, that, that sort of thing. Now this is a sacred cow, so this is a very, very important question. How do you deal with it? Well, the, the, at the core of the issue to me is the metaphor we use to describe what the Bible is. And the metaphor we commonly use is the Bible is a constitution. I mean, even people who don't use the word constitution, that's how they, that's how they treat the Bible. You know, a constitutional lawyer, senator, congressman, a Supreme Court judge, they're going to quote article, this, section, this, subsection, that, and we quote book, chapter, verse. But you know, the Bible itself is not a constitution. Uh, and if you say, well, what is it? In the book I propose, the Bible is a library. It's a collection of documents. And uh, uh, a collection of documents does almost the opposite for us uh, of what a, a constitution does. Now, the downside of a constitution is the right, wrong, good, bad. Yeah, yeah. we're going to get into arguments about, and it's about power, really, in the end. You know, we have arguments about the authority of the Bible. It's really about the authority of the people interpreting the Bible a lot of the time. And there's been abuses. Oh, gosh. I mean slavery. You know, everybody's heard of Uncle Tom's Cabin, but in the book I tell the story of a book, a, a, a very important book of the pre-Civil War era called Nellie Norton. Uncle Tom's Cabin helped undermine confidence in slavery. N Nellie Norton was a novel to celebrate the greatness of slavery. And the subtitle was basically something like this, how the Bible is a pro-slavery Bible and God is a pro-slavery God. Now, that turns your stomach to hear that now, but we haven't had any scrutiny about the way we read the Bible. We're still using it the same way. But someone who goes into a library, they read the opposite of that. An awareness comes, a conversation starts. In fact, in a good library, you want to present all sides of an issue. A good library preserves key arguments. A good constitution eliminates all arguments. Uh, and so, uh, to me, w based on our expectations of, how, of what, we, what we bring to the Bible, you end up with a very different uh, understanding of the Christian faith. Now, this is where it starts to get crazy, though, because now you're inviting conversation, inviting... Uh... Ah, well, we have big arguments. Should we be over the Bible, interpreting it, under the Bible, sort of submitting to it? My suggestion is we should be in the Bible. We should be in the conversation because none of the questions are still open and we're still part of the conversation. If you say, is the Bible a good constitution? It solves all questions, tells everybody what to do. Well, we've been arguing about it for a long time and we aren't any closer to all agreeing. But if you say, does the Bible do a good job of stimulating conversation? It's fantastic success there. Well, in the past, apologetics is ruled, right? Now we're changing the conversation, huh? Well, the irony there is we're trying to use the Bible to prove things when people don't start with confidence in the Bible. I mean, you know, that, that, that's just that, that's where we get in trouble with it. So, so this really will be a whole new kind of Christianity. I think I exactly right. A new approach to the Bible, you get a, a new kind of Christianity.
All right, so that part of that sounded good, right? There's always a nice little amount of truth that you can slip in to, did God really say? Um, clearly, when we say, you know, here's a question, here's an answer, here are the texts to look at to, to gain understanding of the answer, we are saying God's word contains the truth. Um, and it's not just a library where I go and say, hey, let me kind of enter into the conversation as if I am on equal footing with the Lord Jesus and the apostles to come up with my own understanding. Uh, I'm rather beneath the Bible. Uh, I mean, I, I stood once at a, um, no, I sat. The guy who was being uh, put up for ordination was standing, an ordination council, and uh, we noticed early on, all of us, that it, it, this guy was a little bit far afield of a Orthodox Christian view of the scriptures. And my friend Jerry Kohler raised his hand and said, look, I gotta just ask, are you subject to God's word or is God's word subject to you? And he, the candidate stood there like deer in the headlights for like 30 seconds and finally said, I like to think that I'm subject to it. Yeah. A lot of uh, abstentions when it came time to vote, <laughs> myself included. But um, yeah, th that's really, I think, more and more how even Christians who will sometimes say chapter and verse want to view the, the, the Bible. And it's very uh, in keeping with where our culture is today. Our culture is not one that wants to look to authority. I mean, this goes really back, ironically, to the Protestant Reformation, where instead of saying, well, what does the church teach? All right, that's what I believe. People said, well, let's go back to the scriptures. You know what? Let's go back to the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek. Let's actually look at the source. Um, and that's a good impulse. We don't want to, to say, okay, the traditions of men will trump the word of God, but we certainly don't want to put ourselves on par with the biblical authors, if we really believe they are inspired, and these are not just the words of men, but is the word of God. And that's the whole linchpin here. What does it mean that these words are inspired? What does it mean when Jesus says to the crowd, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me? And, and there was a huge crowd, and they were like, we're gone. You're weird. This is a cult. And they all started leaving. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, if you want to slip away too, now's a good time. You won't be conspicuous. And what does Peter say? Where would we go? To whom will we go? You have the words of life. Right? What does that mean? You have a vast library of um, like icebreakers that make me consider what I believe about X, Y. No, you have the actual words of life. When we say you are the way, the truth, and the life, we really mean it. And Jesus is called from John 1, 1, the word. I mean, there's, this whole thing hangs together on God's word being authoritative and not being just a collection of sayings that I can take and with all my funny play make them say whatever I want, whether that is slavery is biblical, or whether it is any number of positions today that run antithetical to the actual teaching of Scripture. The fact that someone has abused the Bible does not mean that we throw out its authority. I mean, first-year logic student, first-week logic student can find the flaw in that one. Um, but we're going to pick up with uh, McLaren next week, I think, because I think there's a, a lot there. 
And then we're going to look at this other guy. Um, he doesn't have any YouTube videos up, but his name is Jude. And he was the brother of our Lord Jesus. And we're going to see what he thinks about the Bible and how we should use Scripture Day. And we're going to talk about what it means that the Bible is inspired. But for now, we're out of time. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time together, and Lord, if it was disjointed and, and uh, feebly led, I just pray that despite that, you would uh, in, inspire us to, to think more deeply about what is our chief end, and how do we know how to glorify you, and Lord, that we would remember that it is important that your, your holy word is authoritative, and that if it's not, uh, there are so many other places we could be. But Lord, we believe that where would we go? To whom would we go? You have the words of life and you've given them to us and we gather together to be molded by them and, and to be inspired by them and to be corrected and, and convicted by them. And Lord, we're thankful for that gift. And Lord, we pray we would not be flippant about it or dismiss it. Uh, Lord, and we, we pray that we would understand it all the more as we open a very long section of scripture in our morning worship uh, and, and look at the sermon of uh, St. Stephen to the council and, and his subsequent martyrdom. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us and, and uh, give us understanding of who you are. And Lord, that when we leave this place and go out into the mission field of the world, we would be more like your son, Jesus, than we were yesterday. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen.